This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. In 1968, Robert Clark was 13 years old when he stood before a judge on a charge of vandalism. He was sentenced to a term of four months in the state training school for troubled youth in Kearney, Nebraska. Little did he know that he would never be free again. This is the story of a scared kid drawn deeper and deeper into the pit of incarceration and violence until there was no way out. This is the story of a youth who at the age of 14 was too young to be placed in general population of the Nebraska State Penitentiary, so was instead put into solitary confinement until he turned 16. This is the true story of Robert Clark, told in his own words and with interviews with friends and family. Hey, we can jump in if you want to, and I can start asking you some questions about Bob. All right. Yeah? Sure. Excellent. So let's just talk about where you are first, and you can give me your, your name and what uh, facility you are currently residing in. My name is Noble Johnson, and I'm currently residing, residing in the Norton Correctional Facility in Norton, Kansas. And how long have you been there, Noble? I've been here about four months. Okay. And where, where were you before that? Before that, I was at Larnard Correctional Facility. Before that, I was at El Dorado Correctional Facility. Before that, I was at uh, Oswego Correctional Facility. I was there for eight years. The rest of them, I was five or six months. And then, other than that, I was at Lansing for 40-some years, I guess, 41 years. So how long have you been in prison? 47 and a half years. All of them in Kansas, I take it? Yes, sir. And that was your first conviction? No, sir. I was convicted up in Iowa one time for car theft when I was a kid. Oh, okay. Yeah. about four years on that one, I think. Yeah. But you've been, you've been in most of, your, most of your, your adult life at this point? Yes, I have. Yeah, that's a long that's time. Five years. Yeah. Yeah, I had five years on the street one time. Yeah. I mean, that's just a long time. And it seems that Kansas uh, and Nebraska like to, to kind of just disappear people into the system. They like to keep people. Yes, they do. Yeah. So how long have you known uh, Bob Clark? I've known Bob for probably 30 years, but I've really known him for over 20. You guys have been uh, cellmates for how long? For about 20 years. Yeah, off and on. We've done 17 at one time, and then... They moved me because of my age down to another institution. And then about seven years later, he came down there, and we've done about two years there, and then we started this, because of the COVID, we started this merry-go-round. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just crazy. I mean, um, and were you working in prison as well? Oh, yeah, I've always had a job. I worked for uh, Impact, where Bob did, for about eight years until my neck went bad. And then I got messed up, so so I had to quit working. So both of you guys have worked and 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 stayed busy while you've been in as much as you can. Oh yeah, yeah. I even got a little old fiddly job now. Oh yeah, what are you doing now? Oh, I go out and wipe things down, you know, phones and and window ledges and doorknobs and tabletops, things like that. So you like to stay busy while you're there. 
Yeah, I like to stay busy. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, that's uh, that's kind of how I feel, too. <laughs> yeah, well, I really like to have a job outdoors, you know, because I like outdoors. Well, you were a horseman, you know, right? Yeah. Keeps me busier. Yeah, I know. I agree. I totally I, agree. I move kind of slow because of my age and my and my disability. Yeah. But other than that, I'm as good as any of these roosters running around in here. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'd take care of myself if I have to. Yeah. You know? yeah totally. So yeah. so talk to me about what what kind of uh what kind of you know man you have come to know Bob to be. Bob is an old grump. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but but he's a teddy bear. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. I mean, there was a time in his life when he was scared to death. He done a lot of bad things. Yep. And you know, I I can understand that because I've done time as a young man. I was scared too. Yep. But I didn't quite go to the extremes that he did. But you know, he went to large extremes, and it, it cost him two hundred years. You yeah, know? that's crazy. So, yeah. did you know Bob yeah. during any of this time, or you've only met him since, right? Yeah, just since he come to Kansas. He's so, been in Kansas for thirty three or four years, I believe. Right, and but you so you don't know him in that way of him being violent to other inmates or, or staff, right? He's been a pretty, he's been pretty like conflict free since he's been in Kansas is what I understand. Well, you know, yeah, pretty much so. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, he had to go to jail a couple of times because he's a hustler, you know? Yeah. Well, and he'd have too many of this or that, too many cigarettes or whatever, you know, back in them days. But we don't have them no more. Yeah. And you don't hustle no more. Yeah. And uh, I don't get in fights no more. So he ain't got to pull me out of that. <laughs> you know? And yeah. uh, he's kind of been my uh, my overseer for probably the last 22 years. Yeah. You know? He's taking care of me, you know? Yeah. So he's he's, he's family. Yeah, he's more than family. He's he, He's a true-blooded brother, you know? And uh, he's, I got as much love for him as I had for my own brothers. I'm just curious about the transfer to Kansas. Maybe explain to me and to other people what that was like. Like, how did they let you know that all of a sudden you were going to be moving to a different state? And then how much notice or how did your family find out that you were moved? Because I was in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't let me out of so- solitary confinement. So they uh, give me an opportunity to go to another state so I could be released into the general population because of all the violence that I did, you know, in Nebraska. So what happened was uh, they give you a list of states, and first they was going to send me the feds, mm-hmm. but they didn't want to. They didn't want to spend the money. You know what I mean? Right. So they sent me the state, and actually two states wouldn't take me. You know, Missouri wouldn't take me, and Arizona wouldn't take me, and then Kansas took me. So they transferred me up here, and actually it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Because when I got here, man, I mean, I I had to go to the hole four or five months, and then they let me out in the population. I really haven't been in no trouble in Kansas, so that's why I like it here, because I haven't haven't encountered no uh, trouble like I did back in Nebraska. Right. So 
When they moved you, though, in terms of the specifics of moving you, how much notice did you have, and how did you let your family and people like Dina know where you were going, or were well, you even Dina able? Johnson. Okay, okay. I just, I just met her. What happened? The only, re- only way I met her was through Prison Legal News magazine that I get, and I wrote a, I wrote a story for her. You know, that's I've only known her for a couple of years. Okay, okay. Have they moved you since you've been in Kansas to other facilities? Oh, yeah. What well, what happened, I was in Lansing for like 30, 30 years, Lansing, Kansas, mm-hmm. which is their main prison. Right. Well, I was working at a, uh, I worked at a private industry there for like 22, 22 years straight, you know, and it was embroidery, you know, I was a machine operator. And what they did is they moved it to another facility in El Dorado, Kansas. Mm-hmm. So they transferred me from Lansing to El Dorado, and I and I was there for like a year, and then the works it slowed down, and so I ended up getting transferred to a place called Oswego for older prisoners. And then I was there for like I was there for two years, and then they they shut that down because of COVID, and then I've been transferred to two places since because of the covid protocol and now that's why i ended up up here okay let's let's talk about that so private industry in prisons in kansas mean that you are essentially doing a job while in prison for a a it was a private company contracts to the prison to have right lower wage employees and they pay a minimum wage right and how much of that do do you get to keep all of it no (laughs) no they take uh what they do is they put a lot of it on your forced and mandatory savings. Right. And, you know, you only get so much of it to spend, and so that's how they do that. In my case, I'll probably never even be able to get the money that's on my account because most likely I'll probably die in prison with my sentence struck, and they won't. Well, I imagine it'll go to my uh, my next of kin, you know. How much of it do they take out of your out of your check? Like, how much do you get to put on your books for commissary phone calls? Oh, uh, I mean, it just depends. They take about twenty five percent. So they're paying and, you minimum and wage, take, and, then, and then you got to pay taxes, and then they got to take. Oh yeah, you pay rent, you pay taxes, you pay for you know in for Social Security, all that you know Medicare and all that, but yet. You know, we're not, we're definitely not allowed no social security benefits in prison. No, you, because you don't have any civil rights, but they can still take your money. And that's what they do. Fuck. It's such a clusterfuck. I mean, I, and I I apologize for my language, but I just get, it's like this kind of stuff just does not make sense to me at all. And they're already paying the minimum wage. It really doesn't. I can tell you after being in the apparel industry for, for 21 years, embroidery is no joke. As a machine operator, you are working your ass off. Like it is yeah, hard yeah, they, work. Well, you, know, you have to uh, you have to produce. Yeah, you've got to you know you've got a quota you got to make. And I I stayed in that job 22 years. I didn't miss one day for being sick or anything. Yeah. I, I lasted 22 years. Yeah, on your feet on a concrete floor, shuffling shuffling apparel on and off a machine. How many heads were on the machine you were running? Well, when I first started doing it, the first 11 years I was down there, I did what you, it was called twill. Yep. Okay, so I'd done that for like 11 years, and I had uh, 12 heads on the machine. So you were doing applique? And then, yeah. And then uh, my last 11 years, I was on a six-header, and I did le- I did left chest on the first 
11 years, I did full chest. Aren't clear with what those terms are. I'll just give, I'm going to give some context. So TWIL is what, it's part of it, the applique process, which means there's a right. very specific file that is digitized to do run stitches around that right. to, to bind it to the product. Right. It's, an, it's a product, very yeah. detailed kind of embroidery, and, and the placement yeah. of the twill has to be perfect on every single perfect. piece or you on don't yeah. yeah or you don't bind it down correctly and then you have to right. basically cut the whole thing off and re- start from scratch and redo it Re- and on, yeah yeah and or, on some might have to... some products you can't redo it because the product may may tear if you try to take the twill off well yeah you have to reject so i mean it's already really hard work but you're under i'm guessing because of you know having worked in production shops for 20 years as well that you're under a different sort of supervision when you're in, in right. a prison shop where they're, they're, I'm sure their reject rates were much lower than yeah. what we will what we will give our workers a private yeah, shop. Yeah, out there. Yeah. So it's, it's incredibly intricate work, and it takes, you know, there's no trade association for embroidery, so it, you just yeah. have to learn the skill on the floor. So, yeah, learn on the go. Yep, I think it's one of the most skilled labor positions out there, and it's definitely the most that doesn't have a trade association. So there's no union, there's no like, there's no apprenticeship program. You basically, right. they, they say to you, this is how you operate this machine. You either are yeah. smart enough and have the right sort of brain to do that kind of work, or you don't. And so, and that's yeah. the same thing for screen printing. You either learn it, or well, yeah. You they don't. had a they had a they had a screen print there too. I just I, I wasn't in that I wasn't in that field of screen print. I I did all embroidery, you know. Yep. But they had a screen. I know what screen print is. And then the second part of your work, you were doing full chest and left chest. So again, especially on the left, well, yeah. on both, you got to hoop that garment exactly in the right place, and right. you're going to get sizes from e- extra small art. to five to five X. I yeah. mean, so you got to really know what you're dealing with. Know what yeah, hoop really size finicky. to use. Yeah, it is. What kind of machines were they operating? Uh, Tajimas. Okay, so at least you had the best machines. <laughs> yeah, good machines. Yeah, those are those are really good machines. But that, I mean, to do that for twenty and them are two complex. years, them are kind of hard to figure out. Them machines are kind of hard to figure out, you know. But once you figure them out, you, it's just just repetitive over and over. So, yeah. but you still, it's, that's a detail orientated job because. There's so many different ways that you can get a reject, you know, yep. wrong colors, wrong location. You got to really be on that paperwork, you yep. know, a thread break and, un- and understand it thoroughly. Yeah. And well, and the more, the more thread colors you're using on a machine right. like that, if you've got, t- you basically have to times the possibility of mistakes by the number of thread colors right. and the number of heads you're using. So if you're on a six head and you're doing a six right. color, if any of those threads break, right during the process you've got to kind yeah. of start over so oh yeah it's a it's a lot it's a lot i mean i yeah. i you know i've been i've been on the floor of many many embroidery shops and the learning curve so you know and i'm, I'm trying to paint a picture here though so you've got you know individuals that are incarcerated that are working for private business that are paying them minimum wage the state is keeping 25 percent of that for a um right. for a fund you may never and right. then you're paying social security probably into medicaid medical or medicaid right. you're probably paying some kind of state tax and federal income taxes yeah you're paying yes yeah, state and federal so and then trying to help my family out a little bit you know yep so you know you're you're in, and you're never going to see a social security check no <laughs> so, so never because now you're retired essentially but you're not getting your social security yeah 
So I, you know. Well, what I did do though was I joined this. They had a 401k there, mm-hmm. so I joined that. And what I did is I rolled it over into an IRA in John Hancock, which which you have I, talked for 15 minutes for a total cost of three dollars and 67 cents. This message is at no cost. You may continue speaking now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And I'm in that, but I'm currently having some problems with them because they send me a, a monthly check, but I've been moved so much that they uh, they keep having trouble getting my address correct, you know? Right. So they're behind, they're behind on checks, so... That's really frustrating there, you know, because I don't have no access to them. And when I do talk to them on the phone, every time I talk to somebody, it's a different uh, rep, you know, a different rep. Right. So I'm better off when I write them a letter. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing, though. You know, we've got hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people out here who aren't nearly as financially literate as you are. And you're doing all this work from prison. And right. I just, you know, I want to point this out, like, because this, this is what we're, we're trying to do with your case is paint a picture of who you are. So not yeah. only have you come full circle on how you treat the rest of the world and your world is the, the staff and the people you're around, whatever your, your block is, right? And how you're treating your life in general. You've no longer, you've, get, you've basically transformed from kind of fuck it i'm gonna do what i have to do to being responsible to help your family making sure you're putting money away you know doing things that people on the outside don't have the capacity to do and aren't thoughtful about and so you know it's it's important to to show really that this transformation has been a whole transformation not just one aspect it's not just like oh bob suddenly stopped assaulting staff and other inmates like you actually have like reconsidered your whole life and kind well, of I've, I've got a portfolio man it's really i mean not being not trying to sound narcissistic or nothing but <laughs> i've got a portfolio it's uh it's pretty good i mean it's i mean it showed what i've done since i've been here you know i went to school i got a, a gd i got an aa i've got i've did some trades in here i've took a lot of course you know anger control things and i've got letters of uh, recommendations correctional officers here you know because i was they kept me see nebraska didn't want to take me off max custody right so these people up here fought for me to get medium custody right mm-hmm. and it, it they took it was, it was a hell of a fight for me to get medium custody because nebraska didn't want to give it to me you know so I've got a hell of a portfolio, and it's on the governor's desk. You know, I, I sent it to him, copies of everything that I've accomplished, but although he probably didn't even read them, you know, but at least he's got it on file. And then recently I tried to send a, a copy of my portfolio to the pro board, 
in Nebraska, and they sent them back. They said they didn't want them. You know, they didn't want it. Well, yeah. I mean, it, although if they're if they're going to consider you, they should probably read that stuff. So, what is the process like? If the if suddenly they were like, okay, we're going to give you, we're, we're, you get the sentence reduction, and you know through this new legislation, or for you know the you know somehow you get a, a reduction in sentence, you're eligible well, for parole. Well, if I yeah, if I was eligible for parole, then then I would finally be able to actually appear before them through a phone or something, or something, or or here, and they would, you know, make the call on it. But right now I'm not eligible, so I've got four 10 years, four 10 year passes in a row. And so what they do is every 10 years they review my case and then just send me a 10 year pass because there's nothing they can do as far as I have too much time and I'm not parole eligible. So they just review my case once every 10 years and they review it again in 2026 and that'll give me a total of 58 years incarcerated. That's the tomorrow, thing that I'm having the hardest time. And, you know, now I'm starting to talk to some of my friends that do advocacy work around your your case and how kind of how crazy it is. And I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around that that minimum that they gave you for yeah. given even even though the crimes were. You know, as you put it, yeah, like, they were violent. Violent. They were violent. And yes, they were. And but it's just really hard to wrap my head around all that time. But if you know, it's just like when I represented myself. I represented myself and my co-defendant in a jury trial. Right. I, I got rid of my attorney, and when I, and I mean, I never den- we never denied anything. But what I did was I let this jury know, hey, man, I'm guilty of sin, but that. This is what the, these environments like this, when you put a kid in them, this is the results of them. This is what the results of, right. of what this is. And this is what they made. Not to push it all on them because it's my fault too, but this is what these kind of things produce. I'm a 14-year-old kid and a man in the adult penitentiary. I can't even be a child, you know. I'm, I'm in this penitentiary. I'm watching people in here getting murdered and and raped and and everything as you know a 14 year old kid shouldn't be he should be in school he right. shouldn't be going through something like that yep and uh so when that in, implants in your head it puts the fear of god in you man and uh yeah it does and i'm not saying i'm not saying that that's not an excuse but in a way it is and, well, and I- so it's not just that that i attack it was the whole you gotta you gotta put the whole life together with it and it led up to where it led up to, you know. And it does, some people get through it and some don't. I think that's the, the bigger sort of point. We need to, like, focus our attention on your case is really there's no excuse for the behavior necessarily, but there's mitigating circumstances that lead you down that path. And the biggest sure. circumstance is age. This is the the problem like, I have with Nebraska is the most recent brain science shows that you're not we're not even capable yeah. as men especially men uh, of making decisions around consequences until we're in our mid 20s you know and so yeah. so we're talking we're talking about 
you know, and then if you add to it your other mitigating circumstances, which is the fact that you'd been in there and in solitary for two years prior to getting out of solitary at 16, yeah. you add to it whatever trauma happened during that time with interactions yeah. with other inmates up until the, the time that you cease this behavior. There's no, there's nothing in your sort of history that would lead anyone with any sense to believe that you were fully formed adult capable of making adult decisions when all this was going on because as you You grew older it was clear that you saw the problem you know so i i I just think we need to be more compassionate around you know the true science of how people's development actually occurs you know as 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 i said you, you never had a chance when I went to, uh, the very first time I went to the court, when I was on that vandalism charge in 1968, there was like four, four, I think four of us involved in this, right? And so we go to court. Every one of them got probation but me. They mm. sent me to boys' friend school. I, I have no idea. All I know is he told me, he says, look, you got a chip on your shoulder, and if you don't get that chip off your shoulder, you're going to be locked up the rest of your life. And basically, he predicted my life. It come true. I just, I don't know how it happened, you know, but but whatever he said that day in that courtroom, he said, look, I'm going to send you to boys training school. Maybe you, you know, you can get out of there on four, in four months with good behavior. But he said, you got a chip on your shoulder and I'm going to send you to boys training school and uh, hopefully you'll learn something. And I basically never made it out. Yeah. And all the other kids, you know, they got probation. But he sent me up, you know, and then I just did one thing, escalated from one thing to another, and a, a one situation got worse and worse, and, and I got trapped in the system, and then that's what happened, and, I, and here I am. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's bonkers. I, I can't even, like, I can't even, like, wrap my head yeah. around it. I just seen, I just seen in a, a magazine that I get, well, if whenever they let it in from the west coast out there, the San Francisco Bay. Okay, well, anyway, there was a case in there where a guy, they just let him out of prison mm-hmm. up in New York, right? Right. This guy did, he had two first-degree murders yeah. in 1971 on officers, and he got out after, he got, he did close to 50 years. Mm-hmm. Right at 50, 50 years, and he had... I mean, he had two first-degree murders on police officers. Yeah, and he's on the streets, man. I'm like, wow. And I'm glad to see. I'm glad to see anybody get out, you know. But I'm thinking, God damn, man. I got more than that in, and I ain't even killed nobody. I don't like to use that part that I didn't kill anybody because the things that I did was very violent, you know. Right. And uh, so I really don't like to use that. But if you when you, you know when you can kill an officer, man, a police officer in society twice, and you're and you're allowed to walk the streets. I think they can give anybody a chance. I and I know every situation, every situation's different too. You know, because I don't know the whole thing behind that. I mean, they could have shot at him like they like they did that kid, that guy up in Philadelphia, uh, Mumia, or. Mm-hmm. The one that's on death row up in Philadelphia, he had a hell of a case up there against an officer, and uh, he, he's struggling to get out too. You know, he is. But, he is. Yeah, I know. They're they're. But, you uh, know, he's got a lot of so people behind him. There's so many different cases, though. The thing is, is that those there's like so cases, like his case, he's you know he's amassed this like celebrity following, and so it's it, when when we do 
when we're trying to do cases that nobody's heard of, you know. Yeah, nobody even nobody knows who I am. So, nobody. Yep. No one even knows me. Yep. I'm just I'm just the old kid that went in in the Midwest and and I probably got in damn near as much time as anybody in the United States, maybe outside a few guys in Louisiana. Right. Because I know down in Louisiana, there's some down there that's been locked up 50 plus, mid 50 and late 50s, you know. Louisiana's brutal. There's a guy here that served over 60 years that got out last year. In Philly, yeah. Yeah, I'm in Philly right in now. In Philly? Yeah. Yeah, he was a juvenile. He was that. a juvenile lifer. I think he, maybe it was Who maybe was it was that? just under fifty eight years. I'll, I'll, I'll ask Suave. Suave, Suave knows him. He's going to come so on how, the show. So how so how much did he do? I think it was fifty eight years. He did fifty eight, huh? Yeah. And they let him out. Yeah, they finally let him out. Wow. Yep. He was how the, old was he? He was in. He's in his. He was in his seventies. No shit. Yep. Yeah, I, I love hearing about them kind of cases because it gives me drive. Yep, there's a couple you know, of guys here can... that didn't fall under the the Supreme Court decisions originally, so they're they're right. they're coming up on that too. Yeah, but there's just a there's like some brutal it. cases, man. I you know my buddy yeah. Willie, you know who I talked to yesterday yeah. or the day before. I mean, right, he's, right. he's got he's yeah. got over he's coming up on on forty years. You know, Ralph Trent Stokes is on at forty years here in in Pennsylvania. Well, my my uh, my partner that I sell with Noble, the one that wrote it out for thirty minutes for a total cost of seven dollars and thirty five cents. This message is at no cost. You may continue speaking now. But the guy that wrote the intro to that book, yeah, 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 that you got right now, my he's my cell partner. He's got, he's coming up on forty. He's got forty-seven in. You know, Dina actually mentioned him the yeah. other day. She said I might want to talk to him at some point. Said he's a he's yeah, an interesting he's a guy. hell of a guy, man. Yeah, he really is. And this guy, he's seventy-six years old, and they he's been eligible for parole since nineteen ninety-one, and they still won't let him out. And he's seventy one. No, he's seventy six. What is he going to do when he gets out that they're so worried about? <laughs> well, he's yeah, that's what I'm saying. Low <laughs> level. I mean, he's and he's got you know he's he's got some uh, medical issues, you know. Yeah. So there's nothing, you know. All the thing they're doing to certain people that we're like, what do they call them? We're just like they, there's certain people that they want to they want to make a poster child of and say, well, look at here. Look what we did to this guy. We kept this guy locked up 50 years, you know. You better not do this or you're going to end up like him. But then some guys, they'll take some guys and let them out in 25 or 30. When I hear a guy that get, that's done 30 years, that don't sound like shit to me. And I know that's a long time. Yeah. But when I hear somebody that just done 30 years, I say, oh, man, that guy, he got blessed, you know. Because, yeah. man, I got over five decades in yeah, I mean, you know, and that's and all of it is a really when you when you get it. I, as far as I'm concerned, when you get into into double digit decades, you've done a long yeah. time. Yeah, but when it's you're talking a long about, time, when you're talking about fifty four years, you're talking about in yeah. We we say that we were talking about this, and I tell people when I introduce your story to them, I'm like, I, just for context. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I went in around the same time as Sir Han Sir Han went in mm-hmm. out there in California. And and I went in before Charles Manson went in. Nobody even knows who I am. I yeah. don't I mean it ain't like I want I definitely don't want no notoriety, but I'm saying you've got people in these prison systems like me that's been in these situ in these 
place just locked up and no one even knows nothing about them. And then they just die off, you know what I mean? And like I say, I, I just hope I can help someone else, you know, not not committed what I, you know. And, and I got another book coming out next year that, that they're already going to put. But this is a different book. It, it, it was like it was like a book, a, a plea to God. It was like a, a journal to him every day to please help me get out of this place, man. If you're really there, if you're really there, it was a, a daily diary mm-hmm. to God every day. And, and they said it was a hell of a... The publishers are going to publish it next year, you know. Okay. Word Out Books okay. out in Oregon, Eugene, Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. And that's who did the other one? Yeah. Nice. Nice. I yeah, should probably talk to them did, at some did. point. That's why I wanted to talk to you about work a little bit today. You know, is okay. is really compelling for people. You know, it's going to be like what? Yeah. Why? If this if this man who admit admits to being a menace in the prison in yeah. when he was when he was young has made this yeah. dramatic a change, why is he sentenced consecutively on all of these offenses? And why were they? Yeah. Why was he given so much? Like what? What in this makes him ineligible for parole versus other people yeah. in the same state who have committed heinous yeah. crimes that are now yeah. walking free? You know, it just doesn't make yeah. any sense. I mean, that's just the, like because when they say you're incorrigible or you're a lifetime, you're going to be a lifetime criminal or whatever other you know. Yeah whatever other you know name or moniker they put on you you've proven that to be false so what they sentenced you under was the was the sort of the they sentenced you under this idea that you were going to continue to be that person which you've proven not to be so why wouldn't they reconsider the sentence so that's kind of the goal like it doesn't make any sense they they basically they put you in a box and said this is who you're going to be the rest of your life and you're not you're not that person so how do we go back and fix that you uh you just any way you want to do it, Kevin. You do it, okay? Yep. And I appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at Death by Incarceration Podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or ten. Follow us on social media at Death by Incarceration on Instagram, at DB Incarceration on Twitter, at DBI underscore Podcast on TikTok. For all booking and media requests please email Kevin at deathbyincarcerationpodcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media, LLC. Produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Editing by Jason Usry. Thanks to Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Please listen to our other shows, Injustice with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, and watch for our upcoming special on the Camp Hill Riot of 1989. Special thanks to Checker for all their support of the show and to Kevin and Suave individually. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone. And please, if you can, take action. Media Podcast.